0: Belarus has evolved from a difficult neighbor to a hostile neighbor.
1: border politics along the edge of NATO territory are shaping Poland's upcoming election. For Saturday, September 23rd, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. We'll also hear about the latest on the autoworker strike, as President Biden plans to head to the picket lines himself in the coming days. And an NPR investigation finds that one in four inmate deaths in federal prisons since
2: 2009 happened at just one facility. If the public knew how badly the medical issues were of these individuals, I would think they would be shocked that they're still incarcerated.
1: Plus, a look at how much the sports journalism industry has changed.
3: I do think the talent in 2023, just in terms of writing and reporting, is the highest it's ever been.
1: First News.
4: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Senator Robert Menendez is making it clear he won't step down, despite mounting calls to resign from both Washington and his home state of New Jersey. Today, Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman joined the chorus calling on him to leave. New Jersey Congressman Andy Kim says he'll run for Menendez's seat. This pressure comes after Menendez was indicted yesterday on federal corruption charges. And here's Juliana Kim has more.
5: Hours after Menendez was indicted, several top lawmakers from New Jersey came out against the senator, including Governor Phil Murphy. Murphy said the charges were simply too serious to ignore, adding that the allegations compromised the senator's ability to effectively do his job. Those views were also shared by some members of Congress, including Representative Dean Phillips from Minnesota and Representative Jeff Jackson from North Carolina, both of whom are Democrats. But Menendez isn't budging. He says, those who believe in justice believe in innocence until proven guilty. End quote. The senator's first hearing in federal court is
4: Wednesday in Manhattan, along with his wife and three others. Julianna Kim and News. A black high school student's family in Houston has filed a civil rights lawsuit after being suspended from school for his hairstyle. Texas Public Radio's Jerry Clayton reports.
1: The lawsuit was filed against Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Attorney General Ken Paxton after Darrell George was suspended from a Houston school
6: in late August. Officials said George's dreadlocks violated the school's dress code. The suit filed in a Houston federal court claims that the state of Texas failed to enforce the Crown Act, a new law that prohibits racial discrimination based on hairstyles. The family's attorney said in the lawsuit that the student should be permitted to wear his hair in the manner in which he wears it
1: because the so-called neutral grooming policy has no close association with learning or safety and when applied, disproportionately impacts black males. I'm Jerry Clayton in San Antonio.
4: Tropical storm Orphelia is producing heavy rain and high winds as it slowly churns through North Carolina and heads up the East Coast. Will Michaels of member station WUNC reports the storm is expected to weaken today.
6: Ophelia made landfall along North Carolina's Crystal Coast. Nathan Grosshandler runs a fishing charter service out of his home on Indian Beach, North Carolina.
7: We saw three to four foot chops, which is pretty
8: rough.
6: Power is back on at Grosshandler's home, but outages are climbing to the north. The National Weather Service says storm surge of two to four feet is still possible along the coasts of North Carolina and Virginia through early Sunday morning. For NPR News, I'm Will Michaels in Chapel Hill, North Carolina.
4: And the National Weather Service has issued flash flood watches and warnings for parts of several states along the East Coast. You're listening to NPR News.
9: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Residents of a city-run apartment building are calling on the Boston Housing Authority to do a better job. The elevator at the Ruth Barkley Apartments on Monsignor Reynolds Way has been out of service since September 14th. Resident Virginia Dillard says it breaks down a lot.
7: There's amputees in my building, and there's a lot of wheelchair tenants in this building. And we rely on that elevator, and it's broke at least once a damn week.
9: The Housing Authority says because of the elevator's age, it's hard to find replacement parts. The agency hopes to have it fixed by early next week. Dillard says the elevator needs to be replaced, not repaired. State housing officials are launching a 90-day effort to reduce the number of vacancies in state-subsidized public housing. The Public Housing Division plans to give money and provide assistance to help local housing authorities fill vacant apartments. An investigation by WBUR and ProPublica found nearly 2,300 state-funded apartments were vacant at the end of July despite a statewide housing shortage. Emergency bridge repairs are underway on Route 93 in Stoneham. The State Transportation Department says the deck is being repaired on the bridge carrying 93 northbound over Montville Avenue in Stoneham. Some lanes of 93 are closed. Work is due to continue into the evening. And one of the oldest shops in Brookline this afternoon has closed for good. The owner of New Paris Bakery, Rula Kappas, is retiring. She says the community has made her work a joy.
7: The customers here, are just not customers. They're wonderful people. I noticed that from the very beginning.
9: New Paris Bakery opened in Boston in 1919 and moved to Brookline Village in 1929. At last check at Fenway, Boston White Sox no score in the fourth and the are on the Road in Chicago tonight. 59 degrees at 506, a chance of rain tonight, low in the upper 50s. A slight chance of rain tomorrow, mid-60s, and partly sunny Monday with a slight chance of morning showers, mid-60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org.
1: It's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. It's the ninth day of the United Auto Workers strike against GM, Ford, and Stellantis, Chrysler's parent company. It's the first time the union has ever struck all Detroit three automakers simultaneously. The union also has a president directly elected by members for the first time in its history and a brand new strike strategy. Michigan Radio's Tracy Samleton is with us today from Ann Arbor, Michigan to catch us up on the latest. Hey, Tracy. Hi, Scott. Any new progress on talks?
10: I have not seen anything. It is the weekend. We tend to get a little less information. Um, <laughs> but we do know the union has said that it has made more progress with Ford Motor Company than the other two. And we know the negotiations have not stalled.
1: Let's. Um, this new union president, Sean Fain, has gotten a lot of attention. How has he handled this past week?
10: You know, Mr. Fain has. Um, shown himself to be a really effective and disciplined, disciplined communicator. He's been holding regular Facebook Live updates, talking directly to the members about how the, the negotiations are going. Um, the, the union's use and his use of social media has been really, really disciplined and out there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all uh, everywhere. Um, so we're hearing a lot from him, but his members are primarily hearing from him.
1: What are GM, Stellantis, and Ford saying right now?
10: Well, Ford, as you can imagine, because they've made more progress, has pulled back from criticizing the union. Uh, But General Motors and Stellantis are obviously unhappy that the strike has escalated against them. And they're saying it was unnecessary, the union is not uh, negotiating in good faith, and their latest counteroffers have been very generous.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. One big uh, development is that President Biden has announced that he is going to join the strikers on the picket lines Tuesday. How is that announcement playing?
10: (laughs) Well, you can imagine there are some uh, conservative and middle-of-the-road pundits who say, this is not okay, right? This is a mistake for the president to essentially choose sides. Yeah. Um, the union, of course, is, is happy about it. Um, you know, Mr. Trump is coming to Michigan next week and he is making a play for union members himself, um, saying electrification of the vehicle is going to kill your jobs. And so if I'm elected, I'm to
1: stop robbing its tracks how is how much are our strikers and union members talking about the electric uh, car issue because that is part of the dynamics and on one hand president biden is a pretty strong supporter of unions to the point of walking this picket line Right. But on the other hand, he's the one pushing to totally overhaul the auto industry and make all cars electric.
10: Yeah, he is threading a needle there. Um, and the members, I think, are, you know, they're very, very focused on the uh, bread and butter issues. You know, we haven't had a raise in a long time. We gave up cost of living. Um, you know, we gave up a whole lot during the Great Recession, and we want that stuff back. So that's primarily what I'm hearing.
1: And, Tracy, what what are you looking for over the next week or so? Obviously, the president is coming, and that, that's going to be a big thing, but, but what are the other key things that could lead to some movement or lead to another week of the same?
10: Uh, it's possible that uh, the union may actually make enough progress with Ford Motor Company to say, we have a tentative agreement. And if that happens, that puts a lot more pressure on General Motors and Stellantis to move when they come to the table. Mm-hmm.
1: That is Michigan Radio's Tracy Samilton in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Thanks so much for joining us.
10: Thanks for having me on the show.
1: Border security and migrants are topics at the center of a closely fought election. And that sounds familiar to U.S. politics, but we are actually talking about Poland. A visa fraud scandal has rocked Poland's ruling party, and the European Union member on NATO's eastern flank is involved in a tense border standoff with Russia's ally Belarus. And Pierre's Rob Schmitz reports from that border.
6: Hiking through the Białowieża forest is a journey through prehistoric Europe. This is one of the last remaining old growth forests on the continent, home to the endangered European bison. But it's not a bison that stops me in my tracks. So it took me about five minutes of hiking down a wide trail through a beautiful forest, one of Europe's oldest forests, to arrive to one of Europe's newest border fences. It's a 15-foot tall fence topped with razor wire. A camera on a pole watches my every move. And within a couple of minutes, a Polish soldier in camouflage holding an automatic weapon appears. Time for a swift hike in the opposite direction. Poland finished this 116-mile border wall a year ago in response to an uptick of migrants illegally crossing the border from Belarus. For years, the government of Belarusian leader Alexander Lukashenko welcomed migrants from throughout the Middle East and Africa, encouraging them to cross this border with Poland in an attempt to destabilize Europe. Now that Poland's built a wall, Belarus is reaching deeper into its toolbox. In August, Polish news reports showed footage of a military helicopter from Belarus flying over the border into Polish and NATO airspace.
5: They're really watching us closely. They're testing our border wall. We are always anticipating what they'll do next.
6: Katarzyna Zaronowicz is a spokesperson for the Polish Border Patrol.
5: Oh. It started in earnest in May. Since then, events take place several times a week along the border. Just yesterday, there was an attack. The day before yesterday, there was another attack. Yesterday, a group of about 60 people gathered on the Belarusian side and threw stones at our border officers.
6: Zedanovich says soldiers on the Belarus side of the border are always provoking her colleagues and often supply bricks and stones to migrants to throw over the wall at polish border patrol vehicles she shows me pictures of broken patrol car windows and infrared videos of these attacks her officers will soon have help after poland's government saw evidence that russia's wagner mercenary group was training along the border on the belarus side poland's prime minister announced he'd send 10,000 additional soldiers to secure the region critics of poland's ruling right-wing law and justice party say it's exaggerating the threat to secure votes for october's national election but some military analysts disagree.
0: Belarus has evolved from a difficult neighbor to a hostile neighbor.
6: Defense expert Marek Swaczynski says Poland faces not only a hostile border with Belarus, it also borders the Russian territory of Kaliningrad. And most sensitive of all, perhaps, is Poland's 70-mile border with Lithuania, which lies between Kaliningrad and Belarus. It's called the Svalky Gap. A narrow corridor connecting the baltic states with the rest of nato
0: so in any case of crisis or god forbid conflict keeping this stretch of land in control of nato forces is crucial for any reinforcements of the forward deployed nato forces and for the defense of the free baltic states
6: svachinsky calls the savalki gap the holy grail for russian president vladimir putin If there were ever a conflict between Russia and NATO countries, analysts say, Putin would likely attack this stretch of land first. And that's why Poland is taking this latest threat from Belarus seriously. And for those living along the border, none of this is good news. Magdalena Ostrowska leads me up a spiral staircase to the top of a century-old water tower converted into a hotel room. It's empty, as are many rooms here at her restored 19th-century hotel along the border outside the town of Biaúvezia. When the media reported that soldiers from the Wagner Group were across the border, tourists called us and canceled their reservations, she says. They told me they were too afraid to come. I told them there's nothing to worry about. It's peaceful and quiet here, as you can see. But they didn't listen. Ostrovka says her revenue was cut in half this year because of this. What's worse, this comes after the COVID-19 pandemic and a year when this region was blocked off from the public by the military to deal with the migration crisis. And now we're waiting for what's next, she says, shaking her head. Will they lock down this area again because of another incident? This is our future, our jobs. It doesn't seem fair. A few miles away in downtown Białowieża, tour guide Nina Dzinn says she's also lost money because of the border threat, which she thinks is hyped up by the Polish media and turned into a political spectacle by the government. The government said they won't give an inch along this border, she says, but the helicopter from Belarus flew three full kilometers inside of our country, crossing a NATO border without permission. And we didn't even respond. Calling out the Polish government for hypocrisy on its tough border stance now appears to be even more in order. Poland's deputy foreign minister was recently fired after his department was caught selling Polish work visas to migrants from across the developing world. The scandal is unfolding as the ruling Law and Justice Party has put border security at the center of its re-election campaign.
4: They built this reality in which this is a very big problem, and now we find out that they're a big part of the problem.
6: Political analyst Andrzej Bobinski says the narrative that law and justice, known inside of Poland as peace, has constructed around migrants and safe borders has now blown up in its face.
4: This doesn't play very well with the law and justice's narrative about how Poland is a place that's closed away from the outside world and how peace is safeguarding our frontiers and not allowing for these scary people to come and change our way of life.
6: And whether it's from Belarus, Russia, or from a visa fraud scandal, threats to Poland's ruling party are mounting. And an election is fast approaching. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Poland's border with Belarus.
0: All Things Considered is a production of NPR News which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station. This is NPR.
9: This is 90.9 WBUR. We occasionally offer you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. While a pledge is appreciated, it is not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org.
0: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes, CambridgeCulinary.com. Coming up at 6,
9: it's the Moth Radio Hour. And it runs until 859 degrees at
0: 518. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Science Festival, presenting Art at Night, an evening of satirical comedy, film screenings, award-winning performance poetry, groundbreaking art installations, and more. Friday, September 30th. Reserve your tickets now at cambridgesciencefestival.org.
4: I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman joined the chorus calling on New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez to step down after he and his wife were charged with corruption-related offenses. It's the second time in 10 years for the senator, but Menendez says he'll stay put. Official government figures released this week show record numbers of migrant family members were arrested after crossing the U.S.-Mexico border last month. Overall illegal crossings are up by more than 26 percent, the second consecutive month of sharp increases. And Tropical Storm Ophelia has dropped heavy rain, damaging winds and storm surges along the North Carolina and Virginia coasts. The storm is expected to dump more rain as it heads to the northeast. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
8: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Scribner, publisher of The Six by Lauren Grush, telling the story of America's first women astronauts, six women each making history going to orbit aboard NASA's space shuttle. Available in bookstores and online. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
1: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. The cost of health care behind bars is getting more expensive. Over the past three decades, the population of elderly people serving time in state and federal prison has skyrocketed. And it's not just the elderly.
2: Prisons and jails are environments of risk.
1: Lauren Brinkley Rubenstein is an associate professor at Duke University. She studies the health impacts of the criminal legal system.
2: People who are incarcerated on average have at least two chronic conditions, so they tend to be very sick, more sick than the general population.
1: Inmates have a constitutional right to health care. Not getting that care is considered cruel and unusual punishment. But getting that care, it doesn't always happen. It didn't happen for Jeffrey Ramirez.
11: So in this picture, my dad loved coming to the um, field trips to chaperone with my grandma. And- um, Are those Legos? Yeah. Where? This was at Legoland.
1: Earlier this year, Yvette Ramirez often found herself in her grandparents' living room, looking at old photos of her dad, Jeffrey Ramirez.
11: Um, oh, right here. <laughs> He's right here. This is at his baseball game. Um, oh my God, how old is he? Oh. He was like five.
1: She's talking to NPR's Meg Anderson about her father. Showing her photos surrounded by candles, little ceramic angels, vases of fresh flowers.
11: This is um, like his altar. Everyone that comes and, you know, wants to bring him flowers, we set them up right here for him. And we sit in front of this and we pray for him. Sometimes I like to come up here and talk to him.
1: Jeffrey Ramirez had died just a few weeks earlier of cancer. When he was first diagnosed, he was in federal prison. And Yvette thinks he died because he wasn't listened to when he first started complaining.
11: We try not to hold hate or anger. And, you know, um, because my dad's not the only one.
1: NPR has been tracking what happens to people like Yvette's dad, people who died during or shortly after being in the custody of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Some ended up getting very sick and some like Jeffrey Ramirez, didn't
2: survive. If the public knew how badly the medical issues were of these individuals, I would think they would be shocked that they're still incarcerated.
1: Elizabeth Blackwood, a lawyer at the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, says she and the lawyer she works with
2: hear stories like this all the time. What type of punishment are we really wanting to dole out on people? Because none of these people had death sentences. Nearly 5,000 people
1: have died in federal prison since 2009. And even though there are over 100 federal prisons nationwide, an NPR investigation found that a quarter of those deaths happened in just one place, which raises the question, why are so many people dying at a single prison? We're going to hear more about Jeffrey Ramirez and what happened leading up to his death. NPR's Meg Anderson spoke with him a little over a week before he died, and she takes it from here.
2: Jeff Ramirez was a federal prisoner when he first felt an inkling that something was wrong with him.
1: I remember when I was younger,
12: I was told, once you get to a certain age, you should check yourself. And so that's exactly what I did.
2: It was 2020, and he found a lump in his left testicle about the size of a BB.
12: I put in a medical slip, and they really didn't pay much attention. And, well, I didn't really push it because... I didn't think it was anything serious.
2: By early 2021, the lump had gotten a lot bigger. So he asked to see a doctor. The staff at his Phoenix prison ordered an urgent ultrasound, but...
12: That ultrasound never came, never came. It just kind of brushed me off.
2: He waited for months, and that whole time...
12: It was like getting kicked in the groin. I got to the point where it was really uncomfortable. I couldn't even sit down. When I asked the assistant warden she told me to trust the process. And yeah, that process was very long.
2: Ramirez didn't get an ultrasound until more than a year after he started complaining. It was January of 2022. And as he was leaving that procedure.
12: All of a sudden, I see like three nurses running out towards us. Like, uh, you're not going anywhere. You need to be admitted. And that's when I found out that I had cancer.
2: Ramirez was diagnosed with advanced testicular cancer. By then, it was already in his brain and lungs. He was transferred to the prison hospital at the Butner Federal Correctional Complex in North Carolina. And that's pretty common. If you get cancer in federal prison, there's a good chance you'll get sent there. In fact, NPR obtained records from the Federal Bureau of Prisons, the BOP, and found that one in four of the people who died in its custody since 2009 died at Butner. To an extent, more deaths there make sense. The Federal Medical Center at Butner is the Bureau's main cancer treatment facility, and cancer is one of the BOP's leading causes of death. But NPR also found stories of inmates at prisons all over the country going without needed medical care. We found more than a dozen who waited months or even years for treatment including people with symptoms that were obviously concerning. Unexplained pain, bleeding, lesions, a lump that wasn't there before. Several ended up with advanced cancer, like Joseph Guadagnoli.
13: He finally calls me and he's like, bro,
6: I'm dying. I've got cancer that started in my kidneys and moved into my bones and has been in my lungs for a long time.
2: Michael Boffner.
8: The guards were convinced he was faking it. They found that he had a tuberous in his brain the size of an egg. Greg Baker.
1: Greg went into prison, a healthy man. He came out
13: unable to work, a completely disabled person.
2: Another inmate waited eight months for a biopsy and seven more to see an oncologist. Another had nosebleeds several times a day for months before being diagnosed with cancer. Some of these inmates survived. Some were released early, and some were sent to Butner, like Jeff Ramirez, the inmate with testicular cancer. It just fell through the cracks. Zandra Lopez is the public defender who represented Ramirez.
7: Jeff's case was obvious, but we've seen it in a lot of our cases. When our clients are requesting for help, the internal medical staff recognize that these people need to go out to a a specialist but it goes in this hole.
2: She says she and her colleagues represent inmates nationwide who are not being seen fast enough.
7: And by the time they do,
2: it's oftentimes too late. For cancer, there's research that backs that up. Early detection is crucial. Testicular cancer, for example, is 98% curable if found early. The Bureau of Prisons declined our request for an interview. But a spokesperson told NPR the BOP is, quote, committed to providing safe, effective health care that is clinically appropriate and that it makes a, quote, proactive effort to screen and identify disease at its earliest stages. Yet current and former staff at Butner told us they see inmates transferred to the prison when their disease is so advanced that there's not much to do beyond palliative care. One current medical staff member didn't want to use her name or her voice because she worried about retaliation. But we had an NPR editor read her words.
8: So many inmates have told me I complained about this lump or I complained about this pain for so long and they only gave me cream. They only gave me Motrin. They never sent me out for tests or anything. Now they send me here and I have stage three or stage four cancer. Our question is always what took them so long to get
2: to us and why did they send them to us when there's nothing that we can do? She said she believed some of their deaths could have been avoided. But even if an inmate gets to Butner fast, they still might not get the care they need, despite Butner supposedly being one of the best places to land if you get really sick in prison.
10: This call is from a federal prison. This call is from Frank
2: Carr. Frank Carr was an inmate at Butner. Oh, Meg, did you hear me? When he called me last fall, he had been waiting more than two years for heart surgery to repair a narrow aortic valve, even though prosecutors acknowledged he needed it when he was sentenced in 2020. Records obtained by NPR show he emailed prison staff a year before we talked, asking for surgery.
5: I do not want to die because I've seen so many people die in here. I witnessed people die, and I don't want to be one of the statistics.
2: A few months later, Carr got his surgery. But he thinks because he's a prisoner, he had to wait two years for a procedure that everyone acknowledged he needed.
0: I'm a father. I'm a brother. I'm a son. And
8: this could be your family member. This could be your son, your father, your husband in here.
2: And it wasn't just Carr who didn't get the advanced care that Butner promises. One Butner inmate we found waited five months for surgery to treat skin cancer, a treatment which eventually wasn't feasible anymore. A dermatologist testified in court that the delay was, quote, not up to any standard of care. Another inmate died after Butner staff failed to give him his anti-epileptic medications. A lawsuit filed by his family was settled earlier this year. And last fall, internal records show two Butner inmates died in the night after they didn't get timely medical attention. Union officials say that's because most of the prison complex has no medical staff working at night. Butner Correctional Officer and Union President Delshan Harding told NPR he believes staffing shortages are the primary reason for inmates not receiving needed medical care.
13: We can't provide the security that's needed. We can't provide the medical treatment that's needed and the safety that's needed to fulfill the mission. Across
2: the federal prison system, staffing shortages have been documented for decades. Dr. Homer Venters works as a court monitor of prison health care. He says finding cancer early or keeping a chronic problem from getting worse requires regular contact between patients and health providers. Without enough staff to do that,
6: It's absolutely inevitable that people's symptoms will worsen and people then come to the attention of health staff much closer to death, much more in a, an acute emergency than needed to have happened.
2: Venter says after a death, prison officials should ask two questions. Did the inmate receive appropriate care, and did anything occur behind bars that contributed to the death?
1: That is something that should happen. It would happen if you were in a nursing home and died.
6: It would happen if you were in a hospital. But most prisons and jails want nothing to do with that kind of accountability.
2: In a statement, the Bureau told NPR that no healthcare system is perfect, but the BOP makes an effort to improve its processes. In fact, the BOP claims its medical facilities, like Butner, are accredited by the Joint Commission, the organization that inspects and audits most US hospitals. But when we asked the Joint Commission about that, they said the BOP's accreditation expired two years ago. In response, the BOP told NPR it's looking for a new contract and that Butner and the other prison hospitals are still observing the commission's standards.
6: My question is, why do we have one of the nation's biggest health services not really being overseen by anybody outside of them?
2: Jeff Ramirez, the inmate with testicular cancer, was eventually granted compassionate release. When he arrived at the San Diego airport in the summer of 2022, his family was waiting. When he came out, it
11: hit me like, this is reality, you know?
2: Yvette Ramirez, his 20-year-old daughter,
11: but he came to us with like the biggest smile on his face and he just like embraced all of us and it was like the best feeling.
2: By January, his doctors had told him they had run out of options.
12: I'm ticked off. I'm, I'm mad. I'm, there's a lot of emotions and there's like, what ifs?
2: What if, for instance, he hadn't been in prison when he got cancer? he was sure he would've gone to a doctor right away. But he didn't have control over that, and now he was waiting to die.
12: I can go almost about any any day. I can go tomorrow, I can go a week from now, a month from now, it's all on God. I try not to think about it, uh, it hurts, but uh, I'm just trying to just, you know what I mean, day by day.
2: Ramirez spoke to NPR on January 5th. A week later, he began having seizures at home and was hospitalized. On the morning of January 16th, Yvette was with him when he died.
11: It was 6.43 a.m. and I was right there. And um, I think that's what gives me the most peace, that I was there holding his hand in the hospital room.
2: She says it didn't have to be that
11: way. I definitely think if he had gotten medical attention when he asked for it, I probably would have gotten to spend more time with my dad.
2: She's trying not to feel angry about that. Meg Anderson, NPR News.
1: listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. There are a lot of reasons we might scarf down our food. Tight deadlines, short lunch breaks at work, maybe even a sense that if we could just eat a little faster, we'll somehow be more productive. For those who haven't had access to food at home, there may be a feeling of urgency at the table. And for some, eating quickly while distracted by a screen might just be a habit these days.
7: People are not eating, really sitting down to eat a meal. Very often we found ourselves eating something and doing something else.
1: Lillian Chung is a lecturer on nutrition and the director of mindfulness research and practice at Harvard University. Marielle Segarra, the host of NPR's Life Kit, talked to Chung and shares some of the techniques you can use to slow down and notice your food.
5: Lillian Chung says the rule of thumb from nutritionists is to spend at least 20 minutes eating
7: every meal. Because it takes about that time for your body to get the signal to the brain that you are full. If
5: you're used to eating fast, that'll probably feel like a glacial pace. So here are some things that can help you slow down. First, set aside time to eat
7: and only eat. Make sure your cell phone is not with you or is face down. You're not going to be responding to any messages that come through. Next, engage your senses.
5: Ask yourself, how does this recipe taste? Is it salty, sweet? Or look at the bell pepper in the dish. Notice its bright yellow color. Another thing you can do is take smaller portions to the table. Maybe you're longing for potato chips. So take a handful, put them in a dish, and put the bag away. Then sit down and while you're eating them, notice their saltiness
7: and their crispness. And thank the universe for the right climate to be able to have that potato and the manpower that has been engaged in making it available, not only at the factory, but also transportation to get the chips to the supermarket, etc. You can
5: also say affirmations to yourself, like, I'm not in a rush, or I enjoy
7: my food. Oh, and don't forget to chew. We don't chew enough, and we just swallow the food. It's harder on our digestion that way so chewing our teeth is supposed to help us to break up the food so that it's easier for absorption sometimes we
5: really don't have a lot of time to eat a meal i remember when i worked at a clothing store i only got
7: 15 minutes to eat in that case i would split up the meal eat at a good pace that you find comfortable save it for later for a snack and if you have to sit and eat
5: at a desk, she says, don't look at your email and set expectations with your coworkers. Put an away message on Slack or if somebody comes up to you, you can just be like, hey,
7: eating, I'll get back to you. That's right. And you just tell them, I have to nourish my mind and my body with this food. It is a very wholesome thing
5: to say and no one will dare question you. For NPR News, I'm Marielle Segarra.
1: For more Life Kit, check out npr.org lifekit. This is NPR News.
9: And this is 90.9 WBUR. So glad you're with us. I'm Susan Levy, coming up at 6, the Moth Radio Hour. If you'd like to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston, and you'd like to get a first crack at tickets, it's easy. Sign up for the WBUR events newsletter. Go to wbur.org slash newsletters, 59 degrees at 539.
0: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College, who believes the future is fueled by entrepreneurial leaders. Learn to lead with impact and become a driving force for change. Explore Babson's full-time in-person programs and part-time in-person and online programs at their graduate virtual open house, October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu gradopenhouse. And Emerson Colonial Theater, presenting a conversation with NPR's Ira Glass and Jad Abumrad, this September 30th. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. I'm Janine Herbst with
4: these headlines. The family of a black high school student in Texas is suing the state's governor and attorney general after he was given an in-school suspension because of his hair, saying it's a violation of the Crown Act that prohibits race-based hair discrimination. The CDC is recommending a new vaccine to protect babies from the respiratory illness, RSV. The seasonal shot will be given to expectant mothers in their third trimester. Meanwhile, the White House says President Biden got his RSV shot weeks ago and yesterday also got his annual flu shot and the COVID-19 booster shot. And NASA is planning to bring a capsule with asteroid rocks back to Earth tomorrow morning. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
8: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Proven Winners, with Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, offering a varied selection of species to bring year-round interest to landscapes and gardens. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash shrubs. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at WaltonFamilyFoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station
1: from NPR news this is all things considered I'm Scott Detrow there's a new Truman Capote short story to read the acclaimed author who wrote in cold blood and breakfast at Tiffany's among other works died nearly 40 years ago but the new story another day in paradise was found earlier this year written out in pencil in a Capote notebook housed at the Library of Congress The story describes an American woman who feels stuck, jilted, and lonely in Sicily. Andrew Gulley is the managing editor of The Strand and is the one who found the story. Uh, Welcome to All Things Considered.
13: Thank you so much, Scott. Good to be with you.
1: There's so much to talk about here, but let's start with this. What was it like to make this discovery? Uh, Tell us what you were doing, where you were, how it happened.
13: I've always been interested in discovering these unpublished manuscripts. And earlier this year, I was looking over the indexes at the Library of Congress, and I was looking for works by James M. Kane. And I said, well, I'm at that. I might as well just try to look, over, look up and see if there is something by Truman Capote that was never published. Mm-hmm. So to my surprise, after I, I hired a researcher to look and see some of the works that I looked in the index, another day in paradise, was just not familiar with me because I had read all of Truman Capote's stories. Yeah. So I ended up getting in the mail a bunch of copies of manuscripts that I just was going over. And I looked at this one and I said to myself, no, 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 this has definitely never been published before.
1: So tell us about the story. What's the plot?
13: What do we need to know about it? Well, the story is about an American expat who lives in Southern Italy. Her name is Iris Greentree, and she's having... Another day in paradise, which is, of course, one of those days that many of us have where we're probably on vacation or it's probably a very sunny day and everybody around us is very happy. And yet we come to the point where we're saying, What's this all about? This life isn't going so well. <laughs> and um, Iris Greentree runs across an acquaintance of hers named Betty Bayless. And Unlike Iris Greentree, Betty Bayless has had a lot of personal tragedies in her life. Yet she has not turned into becoming a bitter person like Iris, but is somebody who's more interested in forming human connections. And that what I loved about the story was how Capote could have these two characters intersecting with each other. One of them who has had it not too badly, she's had some struggles but not enough struggles to turn her into such a bitter person. Well, as the person she runs across is just really, really, really having a bad time of it. Yet she kind of knows how to move forward with life. And she kind of realizes that the only path forward when you're really feeling personally destroyed is to try to grow.
1: You know, this this isn't the first time a uh, posthumous work of, of Truman Capote has, has been found and published. What made this stand out and was that a factor as you kind of weighed, is this worth doing work on? Is this worth trying to get into a shape to publish?
13: If a work has value and it's been published posthumously, we'll publish it. And the interesting thing about Truman Capote is that he may not have been the most prolific writer. He wrote a collection of short stories four or five novels, and sadly he stopped writing for the last, you know, actively for the last 16 years of his life. Mm -hmm. The lure of Capote over many other authors is that he was very, very discerning when he would put pen to paper or typewriter to paper.
1: I mean, a lot of authors, uh, noteworthy and not noteworthy, are pretty prickly about unpublished material and whether or not they feel it's ready to be read. What were the conversations like with with his estate and others about going from I found this in a notebook to let's put it out there in a magazine for the world to read?
13: Whenever you publish anything like this, you have to go through two hurdles. The first hurdle is myself and my fiction editor and our staff. And many times we've found these many unpublished works and we've just looked at them and said to ourselves, no, no, this should probably stay in a library for the next 100 years because it won't do the author any favors. Yeah when we've overcome that hurdle and we've all said to ourselves, "Okay, this is something that's really good. This is something that is really relevant to the author and that will enhance his reputation. Then we'll go to the literary estate. Uh, In the case of the Truman Capote estate, led by Alan Schwartz and Louise Schwartz, they were just so wonderful to work with. And Louise was very, very helpful because the manuscript was written in pencil. And Truman Capote, who I think is a, was a wonderful writer. He kind of had handwriting that reminds one of a doctor writing a prescription. Oh, no.
1: <laughs> and pencil probably doesn't. I mean, I found things I've written in pencil and notebooks from like 10 years ago. And it's really hard to read. I can't imagine. Exactly. much, much older so, than
3: that.
13: So uh, our fiction editor was working on finding these missing words and archaic phrases in Italian and. I was doing some work and the transcriber was, and then we handed it off to Louise and Louise was comparing the original manuscript to the transcribed manuscript. And she had so many wonderful suggestions and cut so many things. So it's not every day that you get an approval from an estate and it's definitely not every day where the estate helps you transcribe the manuscript.
1: There's so many great things in this story. I love the scenes that, that he he brings to life. I love the writing in the voice of, of this woman who's really found herself in a bad place through a whole series of, of bad decisions. The, just the idea of being in this beautiful place that, I mean, I would love to be in Sicily in a villa for my, myself personally, but being so miserable. Like, it, it's such a great story. How do you think it fits into his broader work?
13: Capote was an expert in writing themes that felt very very every day and this story has a theme of the expat living in a place that looks like paradise but perhaps there's a universal message that if a person isn't happy in whatever little town they're living in which might be you know the most boring place to them on the planet they won't be happy in one of the most beautiful places in the world and a lot of those themes are still themes that
1: that our fiction explores today, I, but I, th- I think increasingly in the form of prestige television shows. I mean, there's one HBO show in particular about miserable rich people in in, in Sicily. But 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 as a whole, a lot of the a lot of the things in the story are kind of themes that we keep coming back to in different ways, but not necessarily in short stories as much anymore. What do you think the the staying appeal of the short story is a half century or so after Capote wrote this one?
13: To me, the reason short stories are so relevant today, the reason why short stories will always endure is that a lot of times that punchy message, that interesting plot, that turn of phrase can get lost in a long book. And, you know, to me, when I look at a lot of the books that I've read and I've read many, many books because I'm an editor at the end of the day, short stories have influenced my life more than novels because you could just go back and you can remember a short story very well and an author oh, has yeah. to be very economic in what they write every sentence in an effective short story has to have an impact and to me that's just the wonder and the joy of short fiction
1: well there's another brand new short story to read that that that's memorable as well another day in paradise by truman capote published in the latest edition of The Strand. Andrew Gully is the managing editor who initially found the story. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Scott. Great to t- chat with you. Earlier this week, the New York Times officially published its sports section for the last time. From now on, the Times will only cover sports through The Athletic, the sports website it bought last year. The disappearance of the New York Times sports section is only the latest change in the way news organizations are covering sports. Sports Illustrated, for example, is a shell of what it used to be, having bought out most most of its staff in 2018 and changed from weekly to twice a month, and now once a month. ESPN shuttered its print magazine back in 2019, and there are fewer and fewer beat reporters covering teams. We asked Richard Deitch to help us figure out what's going on. He's a media reporter for The Athletic and editor of an upcoming book titled The Year's Best Sports Writing. I asked him to describe the sports writing industry right now.
3: The sports writing ecosystem is very different because we have seen an extraordinary amount of layoffs. So legacy publications, um, including my former employer, Sports Illustrated, um, have really been reduced. Obviously the place I currently work at now, The Athletic has suffered layoffs. ESPN has suffered layoffs. So many of the legacy publications are just much smaller. The good news is that information and stories always wanna be told. There's always a vacuum, and that vacuum is filled by some great work. But you are correct, where like 50 years ago, let's say you would read the New York Times and the Washington Post and Sports Illustrated, you know, you may get yourself a really significant collection of great sports writing over the course of the year. That has absolutely changed. You have to extend your... um, you know, your radius when you wanna find great sports writing. But I will say the good news is it's still out there for sure. It's just in different places than we might have expected it thirty years ago.
1: And you mentioned the Times. I I was particularly surprised and bothered by this decision because I'm somebody who was reading that sports section growing up in New Jersey all the time. There were those writers you turned to thinking like, I wonder what this person has to say about this story. How big of a deal is this decision? Um, We're we're talking at a point where the New York Times has published
3: its last sports section. It's in some ways sort of a little difficult for me to answer that because I work for the athletic. The athletic is me. And so the athletic now will appear on sort of New York Times platforms as their sports section. And thanks for doing the disclaimer for us there. (laughs) Yeah, but make no mistake about it. I mean, there were brilliant sports writers who worked at the New York Times sports section. It's a sports section I grew up reading and read for many, many years. I know some of the people in that sports section. They have been picked for my uh, 2023 sports writing book. So it's a loss. There's, There's no other way to sort of sugarcoat it. You know, my hope is that Times readers or Times bundle readers will appreciate what The Athletic brings because I think it's a really, really quality sports section. But like everyone else, like I'm going to miss the people who wrote for that sports section because they were extraordinary sports writers. And I wish that they were still writing sports today on a personal note.
1: Yeah. There's been a few broader changes that I want to ask you about. One of them is just the, the the number of people out there doing the work. I've been working on another story about one of the pro sports teams here in Washington. I was just talking with uh, w- with their PR team, and I said, "How many beat reporters are covering your team every day?" And I was shocked at how small the number was. It just seems like with 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 so many papers folding up, with with so much of this become becoming consolidated, there's fewer and fewer people doing kind of the day in day out beat reporting, and of course. I could say that for just about every other field of journalism as well. How has that changed the sports uh, reporting world from your perspective?
3: Well, I don't want to BS your audience. Like there's there's not going to be good news in the short term and medium term. No, nothing is going to change in terms of the continued drumbeat of places continuing to cut staff and continuing to try to do either more or the same with less. I don't see that improving where once upon a time, let's just use a college beat in some town, there may have been two or three newspapers dedicated to that college sports program with reporters covering the big sports there. That's probably down to one. And it's not even clear like how much that person would be covering that team on a, on a daily or weekly basis. Yeah. Sports has the same issues as news, as politics, as culture, as features and there has to be a solution and i don't know if the solution is to directly support it through like uh you know kind of a a patreon kind of like place or we're familiar with that one in public radio yeah of course or like some very very wealthy people supporting it almost like philanthropy i i I don't know what the solution is but i do know a solution has to come or this is only going to continue to get worse
1: yeah the shift in the central focus of, of of sports journalism seems to go more and more toward I would say TV, but it's not even TV; it's video streaming because there's so many platforms now. But 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 kind of the the, the focus being on the takes, the opinions, the, the the back and forth, the podcasts and cable shows, as opposed to the writing. Is 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 there any upside in that? Like, what have you seen in terms of how that that shapes
3: the landscape that you cover? Well, the upside is money; you can get paid more if you yeah. hit it right. And the reality is the ceiling for an opinionist in sports is far higher than the ceiling is for a elegant writer or a really, really great reporter. It is not to say that you cannot make a living as a writer or a reporter in sort of doing it in the traditional way. And of course, those still exist. But when you see opinionists all over ESPN or all over Fox Sports 1, um, when you see opinionists who have you know millions of people subscribing to their podcast, there's something fun, obviously, about giving your opinion and people either liking it or disliking it. So that sort of opinion or takes economy is going to be with us for a while.
1: You know, this conversation started on on the downer note of contractions and the New York Times in particular. Uh, but, but I'm wondering, and let, let's take the athletic out of it, where, where, where you said you work. What's the most exciting place for you right now when it comes to sports journalism?
3: Who's doing the most innovative and interesting work? I'm not trying to cop out of this answer, but the one thing that was really great about being the guest editor of Mm -hmm. the year's best sports writing book was that I found like great sports writing existed in so many different places. Just the fact that like, if you went deep enough into all these places, you found like a lot of great writing. And if there's anything to be optimistic about is I do think the talent in 2023, just in terms of writing and reporting is the highest it's ever been. A lot of people sort of long for the glory days, like the 40s or the 50s or the 60s. You look at some of the writing there, a lot of it's garbage, to just to be <laughs> blunt. So that's what's great about this project is that like, the quality of journalistic talent, it's really, really high. And that's cause for celebration. What's not cause for celebration is I worry significantly if you know, out of the people who I selected in this book for the main book and honorable mention, if like 40 percent of them aren't out of the business in 10 years, yeah. that's what scares me. And they decide to go to another profession where they can pay their bills and and buy houses at an easier rate. That's Richard sports media reporter for The Athletic and editor
1: of the year.